You're listening to TIP. Welcome to the second and last part of episode 481, which we decided to call Our Finances. I hope you had the chance to listen to the first part that was published yesterday. We'll continue where we left off by telling you the story of how William and Trey joined our team. Later, we'll take you behind the scenes of our finances here in the Amasis Podcast Network. You will learn about our business model and how we got approached by potential buyers last year, the valuation, and why Preston and I said no to selling our company. In the eight years since we founded our company, we never talked about our finances because we wanted this show to be for the audience, by the audience. Today, we make an exception and have created this episode for our most avid listeners who might have been with us since the very first episode, 2014, and those listeners who are just curious about our business. You will hear the details about how much money we're currently making and how we're making money, and more importantly, why the Investors Podcast Network is not about profits, but about creating the best possible workplace for our team. And even if our approach is not the most profitable approach, we would argue here on the team that it's the right way to conduct business and live your life. I'm joined by Clay Fink, who is the new host of We Study Billionaires. You will get to know him by the end of this episode. Here we'll also talk about the upcoming Berkshire event in May 2023. All right, let's jump right into the second part of this episode. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. How about you talk a little bit about some of the other hosts and how they came about to be a part of the team, specifically Trey and then William? Each of the stories of, of the hosts are, are different. There is different follow-up. For example, with whenever we were looking for Trey's position, it was not originally as the host of Mr. Billionaires. He applied to set up a show in a new feed called Intrinsic Value. Never happened in case you're like, I never heard about that. It never happened. And so... It was really in the middle of the process where I thought to myself that it would make more sense to have more episodes in the We Stay Billions feed instead of setting up a brand new feed. And the way that we uh, were looking for the right hire was just mentioning on the show, we might have sent out an email to our email list saying, hey, if you're interested in being a host here on the network, drop us an application. And I got a ton of applications for that position. And I did what felt like countless job interviews. And I remember one of the job interviews I had with Trey and I grilled him on the balance sheet. And I remember during that, one of those job interviews, like he was looking like he was about to die. I wasn't looking for the person with the best technical skills uh, that can always be trained. I was looking for the person with the right personality and attitude. And I also want to say in Trey's defense, like it wasn't specifically targeted at, at, at Trey. I always, during my job interviews, I want to ask questions that I know that the candidate cannot answer. And I'm not doing it to be rude or anything like that, but it's because I want to see how they react. <laughs> how do they react to a situation in a stressful situation that don't know how to answer? It was a similar like, mindset whenever you know, I gave you that pushback on your performance, like, oh, you know, five or 10. Partly it was because I meant it, but it was also because I want to test how you would react. Yeah, that reminds me of when you invited me to visit you in Denmark, I was there for a week. And I remember a couple specific questions. You were asking me about the balance sheet, similar to what you did with Trey. And one specific question I believe you asked me was about the SHA-256 in the Bitcoin protocol. It's like, I'm no software engineer. I'm an investor is kind of, kind of my uh, answer to you. And 
And then Sean, when he was onboarded onto the team, he was asking me, oh, what sort of things does Stig ask you? He wanted to be prepared. I'm just like, I'm not sure if you uh, can be totally prepared for this, for what Stig's about to throw at you, but be mentally prepared to be challenged is all I'm going to say. And good luck. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I, again, I just want to stress, I'm I'm not doing it in any kind of way to be rude or or anything like that. I, I do it because I want to see how the candidate react because some candidates become aggressive or dismissive or just start to like BS. And I mean, you just don't want to work with those people. You want to work with people who are, who have a humble approach and who are very upfront about what they know and don't know, because you also want to work with people who are straight shooters and say, you know, I don't know the answer to that question, but could you please tell me or tell me how I can figure it out for myself? Like, those are the people you want to attract to your team, like those with the right values. You don't want people who, with those big egos we talked about before who are just straight up lie to you or your BS through. Or like, those are probably not the people you want to work with. And so specifically for Trey, you know, he had this perfect combination of being humble and transparent about what he didn't know, but you know, still have that feeling you know, of, I got this, which is very important whenever you are forced to, to improvise as you sometimes are with a guest. And Trey has this likable personality that we really want to represent the brand. And that trait can't really be trained, whereas a lot of the technical stuff, like let's say, you know, I ask you some stuff about owner's earnings. And, you know, I remember like I asked you a bunch of that stuff whenever you were visiting me in Denmark, like bunch of that can be trained or all of it can be trained. Whenever you're sort of like put on display in front of thousands of people listening to your content, like you will quickly be on a steep learning curve and learn a bunch of stuff. And so you're not looking for the technical skills. That would come. You're looking for the right attitude. Back then, I decided to hire Trey for 12 episodes as a test. And after that, you just saw how great he was. We quickly agreed that he would continue hosting Wisted Billionaires. And you can just feel from speaking with Trey that he was a true fan. It was quite important because, you know, I think I mentioned this before, like if, if the host is not a believer, how can you expect the listener to be? And you can just tell how important it was for him to get this opportunity to be a host. And, and you want to work with fellow fans of the show. And, and Trey was a fanboy for sure. It was important for, for TP at the time. And it was also today that to say that Trey wasn't offered the job. The way that we see things is that, and I'm just using Trey's example, I could say the same for you or someone else on the team, but like, he applied for the job alongside many other fans. And he got the privilege of representing the brand for 12 months at the time. And then he's evaluated by the support team if they still want to continue working with him. And they're also evaluated by the audience because we track you know, the performance of those episodes. And so even with William, who has a different story, and perhaps we can come to some of that later, it's still that humble mindset we're looking for in the hosts. Like they're there for the audience and they're there for the team and it's not the other way around. And you know, Preston was very particular about this whenever we started what was called The Investors Podcast back then. I guess it still does, even though we interchangeably call it The Investors Podcast and we started billionaires. Preston had this thesis that most podcasters create their show to massage their own ego and not to empower others. And I learned from Preston how important it was to keep your own ego in check and be there for the team, for the audience, and not feel that they're for you. And it's really the same approach I hope that the host on our network have whenever they go to work. And so perhaps that's also why it took us eight years to do this episode. You know, we have this 
humble approach that perhaps the audience are not interested at all about our business and not interested about the hosts. And they just want to learn about the financial markets and how to come up the wealth. I mean, the last thing the world needs is yet another podcast about the host telling week after week how successful he or she is. And from that ivory tower, like we just, we don't want that. So, hey, it might take us another eight years. Who knows? Before we do another episode like this. And, you know, because it, it might be interesting for some of our hardcore listeners, but for a bunch who are subscribed to the show, they're like, tell me how to make more money, dude. That, and that's okay. I mean, because we're there for the audience. They're not there for us. You know, I've probably talked up TIP quite a bit up to this point, but really your ability and what you've done in terms of bringing the right people on the team is really incredible. I can look just down the line of the hosts you've hired, for example, and just the combination of humility, capability, you know, work ethic, all these traits. And just when I thought TIP couldn't get any better, you bring William Green onto the team. I didn't I actually didn't know who William was prior to him joining, but I had the chance to visit him to help him get his equipment set up up by New York City. And you know, just the content he puts out is like it fits so well within the TIP brand, in my opinion. And it's such a privilege and honor to have him a part of the team as well. So maybe you can talk about the story behind why and how he joined TIP. Thank you for the kind words about the culture on the team. And to your point about William, I mean, he really sets an example. I feel like with, with the way his, like his ethics and, and the, just the quality of, of everything he does, he's just a high quality human being. To the point uh, about how we got to work with William, I read this book by Hans Rosling called Factfulness, which is a wonderful book in itself. I recommend everyone to read that. But one of the takeaways from the book was how we got to know Melinda Gates. Because to me, that backstory was just quite interesting. And so she and her, well, sadly now former husband, Bill, they were quite fascinated with his, his work. And he's a doctor and, and he's now the late Hans Rosling, but did a lot of wonderful work, in, uh, specifically in Africa. And so they invited him for a dinner one day to pick his brain. And to me, that was just really inspiring. The whole thing about just inviting really interesting people, not just like on a podcast, which we have the privilege to do here, but just invite them to your home and like connect a bit more with them and not make it like a business transaction, but just more like, please come and join me in my home. And can I please learn from you? Like that approach is just, I've never heard about anything like that before. And so I was like, I want to try that with William. <laughs> like, I, I, I want to try that with William because he was a guest back in 2015 where he wrote this wonderful book, The Great Minds of Investing. And you know this, Clay, from having interviewed a ton of people. There are some guests where you're like, uh, finally, I'm done. Let's not invite this guest back on ever. But you also have guests where you don't even notice that time is just flying by. And that was just how it was with William. Back then, Preston and I were still hosting together, and we did a double episode with him, which we typically didn't do, are not doing with guests. We've probably done that, I don't know, five times or whatever over the past eight years. So we don't really do that. But he just, we did that with him because he was just, we just kept on wanting to talk with him. And even whenever the, like, we probably talk, I don't know, two, three hours, we talk for a long time. And still after that, it was like, please, can we talk even more with you? Because he was just like, everything was just high quality about him. And so, I sent William an email and said, hey, do you want to spend a few days with me in 
Denmark and can I please learn stuff from you? Just ask you questions. And so as it happened, William sent an email back and you know, thanked me for the invitation. And he was like, I'm considering setting up my own podcast. Do you have any thoughts on that? And sort of like the discussion went from there. And we originally sell the other miniseries. I think we talked about having two miniseries of six episodes each. But after a few episodes with William, he sent me a message and said, yeah, I, this could be interesting to do on a recurring basis. And I mean, wow, what, what a message to get. You know, it just, it makes you humble, right? And, and it was just about saying yes and letting William do his magic. I talked about those scoreboards before. Unsurprisingly, William is at the very top of our scoreboard mission downloads and just like a wonderful host and setting an example for everyone on the team and in his quality and ethics. What can I say? William is as smart as he's kind. Transitioning again, when I tell someone about my role with TIP, oftentimes the very first question I get almost immediately, or maybe the question that comes to their mind is how in the world can someone make a living from a podcast or being a podcast host? Once that's asked, I'm often reminded of how privileged I am to be in this position where I get to read about investing and finance and talk with these great people. All is my full-time job. So please tell us, what is the business model of the Investors Podcast? You know, Clay, my parents asked me the same thing. <laughs> I, I remember because they were like, uh, you're doing a what now? And you can make a living in the how now? But to answer your question, so the business model is pretty simple. We want to have as many downloads as possible. The more downloads we have, the more money we can make from advertising. We recently branched out to doing a daily newsletter. We also relaunched our YouTube channel. But the principle is really the same whenever you talk about viewers, readers, or listeners. You are playing a volume game and creating wonderful content. And the more eyeballs you have, the more money you make. If we specifically look at podcast advertising, advertisers generally pay, call it $25-ish per thousand times uh, someone is listening to the ads. We can have multiple advertisers in the same episodes, which I'm sure the audience now have realized. And we've decided to say, you know, typically six ads per episode. And again, I can give a soft sell. Like if you really don't like the ads, we, we do have like a, the opportunity to subscribe to that free version. I think it's three or five bucks or something like that per month. But most of the money we make comes from the main show, the show we listen to right now. And we're closing in on 100 million downloads, probably going to achieve that sometime in November this year. And aside from the main feed, we also have millennial investing. Let's say that the monthly volume is call it one-tenth-ish of the main show or We Started Billionaires, uh, which was the feed that Robert Rittman set up. And so in rough numbers, I would say that probably 90% of our revenue comes from advertising. And then the remaining 10% comes from, you know, web application software, TP finance, course sales, we're doing some book sales, a bit of affiliate marketing, stuff like that. And so, yeah, that's, that's the short answer of, of our business model. I don't mean to be intrusive in any way, Stig, given that many people will be tuning into this, but would you mind sharing how much money TIP is making? Let me try to see if I can sidestep it, but still answer your, your question. I think it's a big no-no in the States to talk about stuff like that. And being born and raised here in Denmark, I think we are a bit more confrontational than I guess other companies are. I don't know if confrontation is the right term, but like we are quite transparent about it. I, I kind of feel it's, it's in everyone's interest to be very transparent. And perhaps some people are even, even curious. So uh, I think I briefly talked about some, some revenue numbers. I, generally, I don't think too much about revenue. 
I'm more thinking about the free cash flow. And so including August, which is the latest numbers we have. So for the first eight months, we are at 1.74 million in free cash flow. So probably expect to, to land well above 2 million this year. And we've seen a decent growth. I want to say in 2021, it was just above 1.1 million. And then 2020 was 650-ish. And so it's a quite scalable business model uh, because if we get twice as many downloads, we don't get uh, twice the number of, of expenses. It just doesn't work like that. And so most of the new revenue falls down on the bottom line as profit before tax. Of course, there is also an element of growth capex baked into the numbers you're hearing. For example, right now, we're spending call it a quarter of a million annually on our YouTube project, and we're probably only recouping call it 10% of that revenue right now. So think about this, it's, just, it's more like a long-term project, and it's also a very scalable model, just similar to podcasting. So if we 10x the viewers, we don't get 10x the expenses, we more or less just that falls down to the bottom line. And so if we make another 10x from that, that's really whenever we start making money. Again, this is, of course, theoretical at this point in time, but it's really just taking like a pace from the playbook of We Stay Billionaires. You know, I don't know if it's like, if it's being too transparent or how the audience would feel about it, but you know, I guess most of the audience are business people and they might be curious and who knows, mm-hmm. they might not care at all. Yeah, if someone asked me, what are the biggest cultural differences between the United States and Denmark? The most shocking to me is the level of transparency and like you said, confrontational. I would say confrontational as well for the Danish to the Americans. Like you mentioned earlier, you're quite transparent about what your thoughts are on what I'm doing well on, what I'm not doing well on. And honestly, as an American, that's not something I'm used to at all. And that's one of the unique things of working with people from different cultures, whether it be from the Philippines or from Denmark, Poland, Canada. You know, people just see the world differently. And what one person considers normal, another person considers really uncomfortable. So that's something that's just really interesting and something I've encountered working with you and That was really shown when I visited Denmark and you were asking me all of these really difficult questions. And again, like I mentioned earlier, definitely an an adjustment coming from your typical corporate background. I think you're right. Danes are probably generally more like in your face in many ways. That being said, I also think it's something that I've learned from Rodalio. Like if you want to scale a company and you want your team to take more responsibility and you want to empower your team to take decisions, you also owe them full information. Like they have very, very little information you should not be able to share with your team. And I agree with that. And so you, Clay, like as you continue to progress in your career with TIP, you will be taking on more and more responsibility. And how can you make the right decisions if you don't have the right information? You know, I, I would much rather be upfront with, you know, we definitely had, we definitely struggled earlier this year with like, rising interest rate and we got a bunch of cancellations and you know i was very transparent about this is how much money we lose every single month like these are the expenses for the team these are how many hundreds of thousands of cancellations we've gotten with appetizers uh, because i i don't want the team to worry and i know it might sound odd whenever i say i don't want the team to worry about telling them bad news but they know that i'm going to tell them the bad news so they don't have to worry whenever they don't hear bad news Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. 
From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. I mentioned my trip to Denmark again. One of the somewhat challenging questions you presented to me was, how much is TIP worth? It could be challenging for me. You know, I was a new employee. What if I say a number that's way lower than what he believes the value is worth? I, I didn't figure you'd get upset if that happened, but just a thought that kind of crosses your mind. And you mentioned the free cash flows. That's sort of where I start with is one method would be to just put some multiple on the free cash flows. Some people might be you know, more liberal, say a 20x multiple. Some people might say a 10x multiple. But you mentioned a $1.7 million free cash flow so far, eight months into this year, which is definitely trending in the right direction, which is very good from a value investor's perspective. I wanted to ask you if you've ever thought about selling the company at any point. Yes and no. That was a very, very short, short answer. So we were sort of forced to think about that last year because we got approached a few times. 
And I would say that it was never like really serious. It was just more like, where do you, how do you see valuation? Uh, what's the right timing? Could you see yourself? It, it was a bit of like being on a lot of first dates uh, for the lack of better words. And I wasn't seriously considering it in the sense that I was more just curious and wanted to like get a quote. And I was like, what is it worth? And so being value investors, uh, Preston and I always knew that if we were to sell TIP, it would be the top of the business cycle. And we were quite sure that last year we were close to the top of the business cycle. Like it's difficult to time. You can't, I didn't know whenever the bubble would pop, if we would have done it in 2020 and 21, or if it would last a few more years, like, but it was pretty clear with the valuations you saw last year that last year could be the right time to, to sell. I think that the average EBITDA at the very peak was around 15 on Wall Street. And so it was just quite interesting to like hear how they would value a small private business. Let me give you an example. I had a call with a major media company, among others, and they said, I spoke with the CEO and he said, you know, 10 to 12 times EBITDA, perhaps a bit more, depending on how they saw growth. And historically, that multiple is quite decent. You might say with all the money printing, it wasn't super high last year. But like historically, if you looked at, at other cycles, it was quite good. But to me, and also seeing that we were doubling every year, I was like, uh, if you want a two-year earnout, and if we're doubling, like, then that EBITDA of 10 to 12 is like extremely low. My best guess is that if you really wanted to sell last year, uh, again, depending on the earnout and all that stuff, we could probably have sold it for like 25, 30. Again, it was never relevant. We did have a request for a minority stake of a valuation closer to 50 million, but I w- really wasn't interested in that because I, I always felt that I would just wanted to to leave whenever we sold. Preston and I had some conversation about it. And I guess if you ask me today, I would say that from a financial perspective, we could likely drive our profit before tax to something like four to $5 million with the current side of the team. And you know, we would probably need to add a few hundred thousand dollars more in annual capex, something like that, plus time for the initiatives to grow. And if we did that, 25 to 30 million or perhaps even 50 million would I would argue would be on the low end. I'm super biased as everyone could probably would probably know. But you know it's then we go back to the whole discussion about what type of life do you want to have and I don't think I would enjoy running TIP if we had 100 people on the team. I just feel that would be really bad for the culture we have. And so what would I do for money I don't need? Anyways, that's sort of like a part of a longer discussion, but I think more importantly than the price is just, I, I'm not ready to sell TIP and I can't speak for, for Preston, but if I should relate it to that, you know, we, we did put it into to our uh, original contract that we could only sell to each other unless we agreed to sell to a third party. And so I kind of feel that was really nice. And I'm really happy that Preston had that foresight to, to put that in because of situations like this. So one wouldn't have to deal with a shareholder and, and who might have different goals. But you know, I've said to my wife that I would be ready to look into selling TIP once I stop being excited about it. And it just hasn't happened yet. You know, earlier this week, I was speaking with a wife. It was probably like 9, 10 p.m. So it was long after I was done with work. And I told her that I was a bit worried that I couldn't sleep because I was so excited about what I should do the following day. And you might be thinking, what would you be doing that day? Why were you so excited? So I was going to work on the offline for this episode. That was one. Part. And the other thing was I, I had some projects with some team members I had to follow up on. So in, for all intents and purposes, it was like normal work. And what I realized from that happening was just like, this is just the, the best job for me I could ever have. 
anyone who knows my wife knows she's much smarter than me. Whenever I got approached by those potential buyers last year, she repeatedly said that I shouldn't sell regardless of the price because it's about happiness. It's not about money. And I also said to her that I never had this feeling about a job and certainly not eight years in. I never even had a job for eight years straight before. So I would not consider it before I stopped having that, that feeling. Again, that's, I think that's what Warren Buffett calls tap dancing to work. I only have 15 feet from my bed to my desk. So I don't know if that's the best example, but I kind of feel I'm even more excited about working with TAP today than whenever I started. And the other thing is that, you know, I, I know a lot of wonderful people have started one company after the other. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but it's, it's just never been the case for me. I just never thought about it like that. I mean, I don't want TIP to be another faceless corporation. And living the, let's call it the TIP way of life, is just where you're surrounded by great people. We just talked about Trey, we talked about William, and I, I could mention you as well, Clay. Like, it's just wonderful. Like, why not continue doing that? You know, and another reason why I don't want to sell TIP is that I'm just worried that the new owner is going to see TIP as a profit-making business and see our team as employees and not as wonderful individuals. And I mean, I'm probably naive and because that's, I guess, how 99.99 whatever see business, but I just don't want that to happen to the team. So we've really dove into the weeds on your thought process on business and how you think about operating TIP. And it's I naturally kind of compare it to Warren Buffett because that's who TIP was originally founded on studying. And Warren is someone who is the master capital allocator. He's looking for where can he put his money in a place where it's going to earn him the highest return with a high degree of certainty. And it's interesting how you're not really thinking about that when you're running TIP. You're not thinking about how can I make the most money possible, which you know, that's just something I find really interesting and really butts heads with Buffett's approach and how he thinks about business. Related to selling TIP, is there any price you'd ever consider selling it? Or is there a price where you say, yeah, it makes sense to walk away? It's a difficult question to, to answer because I don't want to be the type of person who would not be authentic. And I guess it would be very different if you had an offer in front of you. And it was not just theoretic, but I mean, I'm not going to, I wouldn't probably wouldn't say no to something like a billion dollars or something like that. I mean, that would just be irresponsible to, to do that, but it's not realistic because it's nowhere near worth a billion dollars. And so what would be offered for TIP right now, it wouldn't make a difference. It wouldn't make a difference if it was 10 million more, 20 million more, because like you said, Warren Buffett has his approach to do different things and I have another. And it's just a question of how you want to live your life. I think there, there are many ways of looking at this. I mean, please do not get me wrong. I like nice things as much as the next guy, but I'm also careful not to be on any type of hedonic treadmill. And I'm not saying that I'm doing a wonderful job of that, but it might be surprising to learn to some of the listeners that I never owned a car in my life, and which is a cost saver. And it's it probably sounds crazy. There's probably also something about it. Well, you visit me in Aarhus, it's, it, the landscape is just different. But even so, obviously, there's a lot of, of Danes having cars. I just, I haven't. What I would say to the American audience is that it's pretty likely if Stig lived in the US, he would in fact own a car. I know what it's like over there where you know there's all these crazy taxes on 
buying a car and people over there really incentivize you not to own one. So I will throw that in there too. <laughs> that's true. We have a tax of 180%. And so if, if you think of a car that's $10,000, you know, it's 28,000 here. So that in itself, and, and the gas are like, whenever you hear about gas prices in the States, things are like, why are they giving gas away for free? Like $5 for a gallon? Like, oh my, if only it was $5 a gallon here, we would do nothing but drive. So it's just, it's just a very different thing. But, you know, yeah, so a car, that's one thing, you know, you've seen how I live, you know, we were at, I don't know, a little less than 900 square feet, something like that. It's not like the biggest home. You know, I, I don't have fancy watches. I still wear my $100 and change watch I got from my wife whenever we were dating in college. And, you know, it's, again, like, I'm not saying there's anything wrong by having nice things. I, again, I, I like nice things too, but I would say it's, it's probably not, or, or I would not say probably, it's definitely not the, the driver, especially not where we are right now, where we are in a more comfortable place financially. It's just, we are just optimized for very different things. And especially right now compared to whenever, you know, we were making no money and we were like, let's see if we can make money to pay rent and stuff. Now that when you're over, over that hump, it's just different the way we think about that capital allocation. And I would also say that I don't think TIP is a great investment case for 99% of buyers. I mean, we, again, we got approached by a few potential buyers last year. And so I called up Preston, I was telling him about it. And like me, he said, I just want to walk out whenever it's sold. I don't want the whole 18 months, 24 months, earn out, not any of that. And that's typically what happens whenever you do sell a company. And I agree. It's like, no, I would rather take a lower price uh, and just walk out. I don't want to work two years and then I have to report to someone who wants to change the culture. And that would just, it would just kill me. That in itself would probably make it challenging. We did have a buyer who said it was completely fine if we both walked away. He actually said it would be, it would be uh, even more appealing, which I don't know it was a big hug <laughs> or, or not just like, oh, if you leave, it's so much better. But anyways, and the other thing is that, you, you know, uh, that person, he was very adamant about, yeah, you and Preston can leave, but we need to keep like the main players there, like XYZ. And, the, and it doesn't matter specifically what it was, but for me, it was like, it's a non-starter for me not to work with, with Bianca, like our, our first team member. We have big plans for next project. And I would assume that, you know, I've, I've just said earlier in, in this episode that how amazing she is and she's wonderful. And I would imagine if, if I were to acquire TAP, I'd be like, yeah, I definitely want her the next 10 years to run the company. And, and for me, that would be a non-starter. And so it's not a great investment case. Like, like yeah, the founders will leave and, and, you know, the CEO would also leave and, and, we don't want to do an earn out. We just want to walk out. Like it's not a, it's not an interesting case, <laughs> really. I might think very differently about this than most others because if we were to sell TAP, I would give most of that money away anyway. It makes a lot of sense, of course, to ask for the highest possible amount because then you can give more money away. But in a way, it also doesn't make sense because you're not going to keep the money anyway. And so it, it's just a very different way of thinking about it. I just don't want it to come off as like, I am super altruistic, anything like that. And I think I also said that previously in, in this episode, I'm definitely not. It's just, I have very selfish reasons to want to give that money away. I've always been very fascinated about accumulating wealth, but I'm equally fascinated about giving it all away because capitalism is such a great system because it gives you instant feedback. I mean, if we produced it, terrible podcast. No one would listen to us and we would go out of business soon. So 
if you compare that to giving money away, you don't have the same feedback system. If you give away a million dollars, you give away a million dollars. And so in many ways, it's just much more challenging. But yeah, ultimately, I would like to focus on that if the day would eventually come where it's no longer fun running the Investors Podcast Network. And another perhaps more likely scenario is that because of the talent we have on the team and because of the, because the, the culture is just so important for both Preston and me, we have so much wonderful talent. And perhaps the right thing would be for Preston and me to step back and someone would take all the operations and Preston and I will continue owning it and just do some board work or whatever people in suits call that. I, I don't know, like we could probably come up with many different structures if we eventually wanted to, to spend less time on this. And I know that Preston and his wife, Demi, have, you know, they're all also very passionate about philanthropy and have their own projects they want to pursue. You know, I could easily see us eventually go that route. Both my wife and I, we're both teachers. Bianca mentioned before, she loves kids. And so I guess if you ask me today, now that you're giving me the opportunity to, to talk about it, is that the plan is ultimately to build schools. And we're very passionate about leveling the playing field. I would say that especially in developing countries, some live under like brutal regimes. And so I think that's something that's inspiring for us. I guess I, I should disclaim this and say, it should not sound like I'm out the door anytime soon. Quite the contrary. I never worked as many hours as I do right now on the MSS Podcast Network. But this whole philanthropy route and, and, and building schools for women in developing countries is some, something that I think the focus will eventually shift to whenever we have a chapter that's not operations of TIP. All right. So it doesn't sound like the company will be changing hands anytime soon in terms of ownership and... You've scaled quite dramatically, as we mentioned, the last couple of years too. Many people in the audience might be wondering, what's in store for TIP for the years to come if you're you know, not going to be selling it? I would love to say something super inspirational, Clay. I probably won't. Uh, I, I would say more of the same. More of the same in the sense that we want to give our, our host this canvas where we can attract and hopefully retain wonderful and talented people like you to educate the audience about finance. I would also say that the market might tell us we can do better, but at the same time, it's also important that we have an inner scorecard that tells us that we're helping our audience and it's okay if we make less money than we do today. It's probably not super motivational if I say that, but it's, it's okay. Like, let, let me put it like this. It's very tempting to follow different growth strategies and start fear-mongering on TikTok or something like that. At the end of the day, I don't feel it's the right thing to do. And I know, I know this sounds spoiled, and I know that it's also because we're in a privileged financial position, but I would rather default by delivering a great product to the audience than thriving financially by creating bad content. For example, Jeff Bezos, he has talked about how it's only a question of time before Amazon will go bankrupt, because that's just how brutal capitalism is. And the best thing that we can do or that they can do at Amazon is that they need to be customer obsessed until they eventually go bankrupt. And to me, that's quite inspirational. Not in the sense of being customer obsessed, because I think I've made it quite clear that, I, that I'm not. But I think it's inspirational what TIP should do while we are quote unquote waiting to go bankrupt. And <laughs> for TIP, I would say that it's making a difference to our team and creating a wonderful workplace. And as a result of that team-focused approach, create wonderful content for audience. And so 
Again, I would say that this answer very much goes to understanding why we set up the business the way we have and, and monetize through advertising, this inner scorecard. Because whenever you ask what's in store, I look at the team right now and I know we have a few more hires planned out for the next few months. And I'm not saying that we won't, it won't change, but I think generally it seems like we are in a spot where it's good to be. And perhaps we don't want to grow too much. I mean, if we zoom out, we have two podcast feeds, we have a daily newsletter, we have our YouTube channels. And so the plan right now is to double down on those. We don't have any, any projects setting up new business units, for example. Many people listening now are probably loyal listeners at this point, if they're listening this far into the episode. And like I was for many years, many of these people might be wondering, I've gotten so much value from all these TIP podcasts, interviewed these, ama- these amazing people, these billionaires, Ray Dalia, you name it. A lot of listeners might not have ever spent a dime for all the great content they've got, which is like a beautiful thing with the internet and the way the world works today. They might want to support TIP besides just being a listener to the show, support in some way. So for those that are loyal listeners that would like to support TIP in some form or fashion, what would you recommend they, they do? Well, Clay, thank you for saying so. Again, like if we have been helpful in your journey into finance, wonderful. I think the best way to help or to reciprocate would be to perhaps leave a review or tell us what you like and tell a friend about our content. And I'll also add that if, you know, the We Study Billionaire stuff, if you feel like it almost goes over your head or you feel like that, you feel like you're missing something or you're not understanding fully maybe how business valuation works, one website I would highly recommend people check out just for to learn about value investing in general would be the Buffett's Book site. And if you'd like to spend money, we also have courses on our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There are free resources as well, but there's also paid courses there too. So if you're interested in learning more outside of the podcast feeds and you want to dive into a specific subject, then that's the place to go. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, Briggs & Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs & Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, it has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. 
It has this new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. Get your new and improved luggage at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. All right, back to the show. Well, Clay, let's talk about you. You are transitioning into a new role on Mr. Billionaires. But perhaps before we get into that, could you talk a bit more about yourself? Perhaps also talk to our audience about how you get to work with us here in the Investors Podcast Network. Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, I grew up in the Midwest. I was someone that was always super interested in math and pretty good at it in school, at least relative to a lot of other subjects. So I actually went to school to be an actuary. I went to the University of Nebraska. They had a really good program for it. And I worked in the insurance field post-graduation 2017 for four years. And for those not familiar, an actuary is essentially the business mind of an insurance company. That's the simplest way I can put it. It's finance-related, but also not finance-related at the same time. It's actually a profession that Buffett thought about getting into, in fact, is something Alice Schroeder mentioned in The Snowball. Buffett's obviously someone that really likes numbers as well. So... Throughout college and after college, I passed a number of exams within that profession. They were very math-intensive, finance-intensive. So in a way, it did help me learn as an investor, just think about the theory of interest and interest rates and discount rates and valuing something. Actuaries need to learn how to value insurance policies is how that kind of ties together. So I got credentialed as an actuary. And along the way, I was a really loyal listener of TIP. I was actually going to go to one of your guys' meetups. I believe it was 2017, but I'm from Nebraska and I knew some people going. And that year I happened to attend with a family member. So I wasn't actually able to meet up with you guys that year. But it's interesting how TIP and Warren Buffett go hand in hand in that you get attracted to them because of the brilliant investing knowledge that could be gained. But what really keeps you around is the principles on how to live a good life. And I think a lot of the listeners would agree with me in that regard. Zooming out, when I was working my job, in the back of my mind, I knew I didn't want to work in insurance my whole life. But at the same time, I was making pretty good money. And I didn't really feel the need to change that as I was really enjoying the process of building out my investment portfolio, building wealth. And that all changed when I received an email from Robert and TIP since I was on their mailing list. And it said that they were hiring a new host for millennial investing. I was actually on vacation at the time. And it kind of, uh, you know, it was kind of sitting in the back of my mind when one of my good buddies that listens to TIP is like, hey, you should apply to that position. And honestly, just never saw myself as a podcast host at all. And it's probably similar to you, Stig, when you first started. But I ended up applying anyways, because I thought, what the heck? 
I'm a risk reward type investor, whatever. There's no downside to applying at least. Worst case scenario, I might get to have a conversation with Robert or Stig and that would be very cool. So fast forward a month or so from that point, it was fall of 2021. Had a few rounds of projects and interviews and I got an email from Robert saying that I had been selected as the new host. So turned my notice into my employer and transitioned careers to work for TIP. Some people in my life probably thought I was pretty crazy. And honestly, it's been one of the best decisions of my life. Again, I did not imagine myself being a podcast host, especially working with the people that had taught me so much over the years. But finance was my passion. I love listening to podcasts and I really enjoy learning. So I couldn't help but take up the opportunity. Going back to that uh, worst case scenario, it's like, the pain of regret would hurt much more than taking the opportunity and maybe it doesn't work out. You just never know. So we've talked a lot about Warren Buffett today. And I wanted to bring in a quote from him that I feel had a big impact on me in making that decision. And it goes, do what you love and work for whom you admire. And you've given yourself the best chance you can. And thankfully, I ended up following that advice. And I'm really glad I took the jump. So Meanwhile, over the past year, I've hosted the Millennial Investing Feed with Robert Leonard. And it's just been so fun getting to chat with all these great investors and entrepreneurs and also learning from everyone on the team, including you, Stig. Yeah, and I could definitely say, Clay, that, well, I, I think I mentioned before, like, just let it slide out that you're the most popular host here we have internally on the team. The team absolutely loves working with you. So thank you for joining our team. Clay, one question I liked, and I probably put too much emphasis on this, and this probably comes from my value investing background, but I like to hear what people have invested in. I kind of feel it tells them, it tells me something about who they are as people. Who knows? It might not be the right way of looking at it, but especially for all audience, perhaps if you can talk a bit more about your investment strategy and, and sort of like through that, they can get to know you. Of course. Since I loved numbers, I just loved learning about investing. Even with that love and passion, I've made about as many mistakes as anyone over the years. Happened to buy my first stock when I was 18 years old through the recommendation of a friend. Knew nothing about investing at that point. And long story short, it was just a total utter failure. And although it wasn't a substantial amount of money for someone that age, it sure felt like a lot at the time. And Thankfully, my investment journey didn't stop there. I had learned, eventually, I learned it's very difficult to beat the market through stock picking. So, you know, as someone that young, I started investing in index funds, but also scratched my uh, stock picking itch. Luckily, I picked Apple as one of my individual investments, just sheer luck, I'll say. And I also added Starbucks, Netflix, and a couple others that probably weren't that great. I can't remember exactly how I discovered TIP in college, but since I lived off campus, did a good amount of driving and I took Preston's advice and turned my car into a learning machine with podcasts and audiobooks. And I'm almost certain I discovered TIP by just Google searching top investment podcasts and TIP was one I found and just what I stuck with and listened to consistently. And I was highly influenced by Preston in particular. Like I said earlier, he's just a very likable person and easy to listen to, just a great host. And in 2020, he was just going on and on 
about Bitcoin, as we all know. I somewhat followed his lead. And by the end of 2020, most of my portfolio consisted mainly of index funds and Bitcoin. And then 2021, still more mistakes to come. I started allocating a small amount of my portfolio to growth companies. These were going through the roof at the time. You know, the theory was that they're growing at, let's say, 100% per year. The Fed's printing money like crazy. What could go wrong? Companies like Shopify, Redfin, Square, those type of types of companies that weren't yet producing profits, you know, they're in growth mode. And I made the mistake of believing that valuation doesn't matter as long as you're buying a quality company. And, you know, that is true to some extent, but you better be ready to hold on through intense volatility when the inevitable drawdown does come. And since joining TIP and studying behavioral biases, I realized that I really let my emotions get the best of me during that period and thinking that I was a genius in a bull market. So that was a really humbling experience for me. And since then, I have been influenced by your approach, Dig, and Ray Dalio's, what he calls the holy grail of investing, which you know it's this approach of diversifying into a number of different assets that are they're what we call uncorrelated. So when one asset does really well, one asset might not do quite as well. So it all balances out in the end. Just to give an example, we don't really know what the economy is going to do over the next 10 or 20 years. And there's investment cases for all these different types of assets. And let's look back at, say, the 1970s. It was a very inflationary time period. We went off the gold standard in 71. And During the 1970s, the stock market was actually flat, which is pretty crazy to think about. Over a 10-year period, high inflation, stocks were flat. And meanwhile, over that decade, gold went up by nearly 18 times. And I think that would blow a lot of people's minds because everyone just says gold, it underperforms everything. It doesn't produce anything. It's just a hunk of metal that sits there. Well, then why in the heck did it go up by 18 times during the 1970s? I don't think a lot of people know the answer to that. And that's something I'm still studying myself to this point. And I'm not saying we'll see something similar this decade at all. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I want to be prepared if something like that happens again. And to add to that, I want to look for things where the holy grail investing just wants to find something where if your investment thesis is wrong, you only lose a little bit. But if your investment thesis is right, then you might make multiples on what you invest. Just in the case of gold in the 70s, you would have made 18 times your money, whereas your stock portfolio would have been flat. So you're not going all in on one asset or asset class. So my portfolio today is still primarily the index funds in Bitcoin. However, I've also started positions in physical gold and silver, although they're still fairly small. Some individual stocks I really like are Berkshire Hathaway, Google, Amazon, and then I have a small position in Airbnb as well. And then additionally, I've allocated towards a couple of uranium funds, you know, kind of an inflation commodity type play, and then small cap value and an international fund as well. So kind of getting spread out gradually over time. So I guess I'll also add the caveat that these philosophies are ever changing. I could sell these positions at some point in the future. I might, you know, double down on some of them. So I'm still learning myself. Years down the road, this portfolio might look entirely different. That's kind of the beauty of the investment journey is you're always learning and always sort of evolving. It makes me think of a quote of China Monger where he says, as simple as it sounds, but he says, 
you have a huge advantage if you continue learning. And it seems so obvious whenever you hear that. And still you're surprised how many people who invest are not continuing to learn. Clay, I wanted to talk about you because starting October 10th, your episodes here on the We Study Billionaires feed will be published every Monday. What would the episodes typically be about? Yeah, so generally I'll be coming from a value investing focus. Many value investors know you're trying to find something that's trading at a price that's less than it's worth or trying to figure out the intrinsic value of something. So similar to how TIP originally started, it all originates back to Warren Buffett as he's known as the greatest value investor of our time. So my first few episodes will be talking about Buffett, how he became who he is today, what his strategy is, how we can apply that strategy to some companies today. And then I'll probably talk about some other billionaire strategies in, in investing. You know, I mentioned Ray Dalio. I'll probably talk about, talk about him a bit. And you can just really expect me to dive into these strategies of all these prominent investors. There's just so many of them to learn from. And it's really cool how TIP started with that value investing framework of looking at Buffett. And then you dive into Dalio's work and it kind of flips your whole worldview upside down. So, you know, it's kind of like a take it and we'll see where it goes. But, you know, I'm really excited to dive into all these value investing type strategies and I'll lo- likely talk about some other assets outside of stocks as well as potentially touch on some financial history to help inform us what, you know, the future might hold for us as investors. And speaking of, uh, of Warren Buffett, Clay and I are already starting to plan the Berkshire meeting for May 2023. And we don't have a fixed schedule just yet. We hope to have events from Thursday to Sunday night, but we're not really sure where it should be and which hotel to stay at and all that stuff. And so Clay and I will be working on that over the next few weeks. Hopefully we will have somewhat of a schedule we can send out to you, call it late October, start November, something like that. and. Like uh, this and the previous years, we're going to have a WhatsApp group for our community. Clay, you'll be the point of contact for a Berkshire event. How can the audience contact you and get access to the group? And uh, could you talk about why it might be advantageous already now or, or call it late October whenever we have a schedule ready? Why it might be advantageous to be a part of the group? We will be sending an email out most likely in late October with our plans for the Berkshire meeting. If you'd like to get signed up for our newsletter to stay updated, you can go to theinvestorspodcast.com slash newsletter. We'll also be sure to link in the show notes a link to all the information on our website about the meeting. There you'll be able to access the WhatsApp link once we get that website updated later this month in October. If you'd like to get connected with me as we approach the meeting, you can email me at clay at theinvestorspodcast.com. Also, many of you follow me on Twitter. I'm at Clay underscore Fink, F-I-N-C-K. As far as why the WhatsApp group is so important if you're attending the meeting and want to meet up with us at the Omaha weekend, this is just a great place to coordinate with me and make sure you have everything you need for the meeting. I'll mention a few reasons that it might be helpful to join. Many people come to Omaha actually on their own. And a lot of people are from outside of the United States to my surprise. So having the group is a great way for those traveling alone to connect with other members of the audience and meet up potentially outside of the TIP events that we end up having. 
So that's one great advantage. Just know that many people are traveling on their own. That's, that was what I saw in my experience. This is so f- people don't feel like they're just simply going alone. You know, it makes it more of a community event, which I think a lot of people will appreciate. A lot of people were actually coordinating together outside of the TIP events this year. And, you know, just to give an example, on Friday night, we met up, Trey, Robert, and I met up for dinner, and we actually ran into an audience member from Barcelona. He recognized us from the chat and it was great meeting him and getting to chat with him and you know just essentially learn from some of the listeners in the audience. And then during the meeting, I actually sat with a person from Germany. So it's just a really cool experience to meet these people from all over the world that are actually listeners of the same show you are and likely have a lot of the same you know investing principles, which is really cool. The second reason I'd give is this is where I will send messages if plans happen to change. For example, This year's event, we planned on doing a bar crawl downtown Omaha on Saturday night. Well, we ran into an issue. Trey and I showed up to the first bar on the schedule and it was just totally packed because, well, it's Berkshire weekend and there's like thousands of people in Omaha more than usual. And a lot of people were downtown. So it's helpful to be in the group just to see where everyone is meeting up if plans change because things can change instantly. A lot of these bars honestly aren't huge. They aren't meant for a Berkshire weekend every weekend. So it's just a lot of local small bars. So we're going to try and plan ahead for that and try and be prepared. But it's great to be in the chat just to see when things change or even just you know have a way to message some of the others that are a part of the TIP community. The third reason is it's a great place just for questions regarding the weekend, such as what hotels people are staying in, what are the credentials you need to get into the meeting, Again, if you're interested in attending the meeting and meeting up with the TIP community, keep an eye out on the newsletter or use the link that we'll provide in the show notes to the page on our website. And we'll be getting that updated here soon. If I can just add one thing to the, to the thing with credentials, because they can be difficult to get because you might buy them through the broker and they get super confused whenever you say, I actually want to attend one of the annual meetings of, of one of the companies I invested in. And the support is like, I never heard about that before. And so what has happened, at least to me, and I heard it for, from quite a few other people attending, is that they can't really get their hands on them, or they have to go on eBay and, and buy them. And it's just like, it's this weird thing where with some brokers, it's very easy to get to, and they will send you four. And with other brokers, they're like, I just don't know what you're telling me. And so I've never experienced that we didn't have a ton of credentials, because again, most people go alone, and they might get, you know, might bring all four. And so what I would just say is that if you don't have any credentials, just ask in the WhatsApp group. We usually always end up with, I don't know, 100 plus extra or something like that. And I know it might sound crazy if I say, oh, just fly in from Germany and we'll just hook you up. I'm not going to give you, make any promises at all. I would say I would be highly surprised if we did not have enough credentials whenever we actually get to it. Clay, we covered a lot of ground in this double episode. Do you have anything you wanted to mention here before we round off the show? I think we're good. Wonderful. Clay, on behalf of the We Study Billionaires audience, uh, thank you so much for uh, now being a, a host on We Study Billionaires feed. We are really excited to start listening to your episodes. Thank you, Stig. I'm super excited to start diving into all these fantastic books and research and all the papers that a great investors put out and help share that with the audience. Fantastic. So stay tuned for Clay's episodes. They're going to come out every Monday following this episode. So already October 10th. Clay, thank you for your time today. It was uh, wonderful to have this uh, conversation with you. Thank you, Steg. It was a ton of fun. 
thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.